there's a unanimous sentiment among business leaders and among academics as well that there's sort of an inevitable creep of artificial intelligence into every industry and that many processes will be wholeheartedly automated or augmented in completely different ways and that companies need to be prepared for this. The big fight here is for talent. In addition to having a lot of challenges to finding exactly where AI has its fruitful yield in business, what exact applications are going to make a difference and which aren't, and admittedly most uh, applications are in kind of a nascent form at this time, uh, talent is the big fight and there's a lot of questions up in the air about talent. Can you retrain an existing team of, let's say, Java developers and have them understand Python or understand Spark or the various languages that they need to know to implement artificial intelligence solutions? Uh, what is the value of consultants in this space? Can you bring in a team of outside experts and trust in any way, shape, or form that you're going to be left with something that your own team understands and can use? And how about conferences and training and online courses? Which of these are applicable for upping the skills of existing teams? and how do we augment the skill of existing teams through hiring and consulting? What combinations are actually going to work and which are destined to fail? This week on AI and Industry, we aim to answer those exact questions. We interview Nicholas Vazalogluo, who is a PhD from Georgia Tech in computer engineering, now runs ML Train, which is a company that, uh, not surprisingly, trains business folks and existing developers and business leaders on the fundamentals of artificial intelligence and machine learning. Uh, in this interview, we talk about the actual value of retraining people, what's possible, what's not, and what are the limits of it, as well as uh, how consultants and new hires can be added to sort of an engineering or development team mix in a way where they actually can produce something fruitful in business. Nicholas certainly has the academic cred, but also has worked sort of in the business domain, has sort of been heads down in the, the world of training people in this space and has a better sense than most as to how these teams can be constructed and sort of, for lack of better terms, cobbled together from consultants, new hires, training, online courses to be able to come up with a fruitful squad of folks who can really move forward on AI applications. So if you're looking to build a machine learning team, you're wondering about the value of bringing on a consultant squad and whether that's more of a risk than a benefit, the nuances of that decision making will hopefully be informed by this particular interview. So without further ado, this is Nicholas with ML Train here on AI and Industry. So, Nick, where we'll start with, you've done a, a decent amount in, in sort of the AI training realm, helping folks who want to sort of up their machine learning skills, events, trainings, things along those lines. It's a good amount of your experience. In addition to the academic background, when you think about sort of these kind of training events for existing kind of technical folks, what are those good for in machine learning? I think people don't really know, you know, what can we get out of this? What's reasonable to learn? What's not? What's your experience there? So, typically, the events we're doing are, you know, one or two days no more than five hours of training per day because I don't think the brain can uh, absorb more. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of funny. People usually ask for 12 hours per day. They want to compress as much as they can, but I think five is the maximum you can possibly get. For this technical kind of yeah, for Yes, because then you get fried. Yep. So I think there's two things people are getting out of these events. First of all, it's a good way to refresh the fundamentals. I and mean, you'll be surprised, but... The most interesting and the most enthusiastic part of the training is when we go through linear algebra and some very fundamental stuff that you, if you don't know them, you can't really follow, can't really understand how deep learning, which is the, the big thing, works. 
that covers the first part. And then the second part, obviously, we go into some uh, modern ideas like GANs and convolutional networks, the recursive neural networks. Okay, so basically for them is a Kickstarter, you know, in, in two days, they kind of like get an idea about where to start, what is important, get the big picture, you know, kind of like connect the dots. Because if you start, you know, reading blogs and disconnected knowledge of the web, you feel like that AI is a uh, hundred different things, but you just realize this, if, if you learn the basics and the fundamentals, you realize that it's, you know, one or two concepts. I think that's the value of the training. Got it. And so being able to anchor oneself in sort of those basics, some of those fundamentals, do most people come in with some degree of machine learning capability or are they coming in with more of a programming background a lot of the time and even to learn the basics of, of AI machine learning? So it's a bit of a mix. We do have the super smart and talented software engineers that they want to learn AI because they find it fascinating, but it's also a way to increase their paycheck. Of course. We do get data scientists that they have experience. You know, they don't have the time to study on their own uh, these new platforms like TensorFlow and CNBK and MXNet and PyTorch. For them, it's an opportunity to very quickly complete or extend their, you know, machine learning toolkits. It's not just machine learning. You know, the rise of TensorFlow and all these platforms has made it very easy for people to program all these complicated algorithms. It's really nice abstraction. But it has some traps and pitfalls that you have to be aware. And being one of the first adopters of TensorFlow, I've gone through that process the hard way, and I know how to train people to avoid the traps. So the only requirement is for people to know a bit of Python. Yep. Uh, but sometimes we also have people that are not really hands-on, but they're coming, you know, just to see what's going on and, you know, to just get some pointers about, you know, how to train their teams. Okay, so we might have a VP of engineering. Yeah, yeah, we might have right. a VP of engineering who used to be a coder 10 years ago. So he gets the ideas. He doesn't want to get his hands dirty with the code, but he wants to understand what is possible. How long will it take to do it? So, for example, when you see that you can train a gun or learn how to code a gun, in a day, well, immediately, you know. When you say a gun, just so the, the generative uh, uh, adversarial network. I'm, yeah. I'm just saying that because of G-A-N, yeah. G-A-N. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll clarify the jargon. <laughs> the cool thing right now. And so they know that, oh, you know, look, I can just go and have a prototype in my team within a week. Even for experienced people who've done machine learning before, hearing the same stuff from a different perspective, it's always viable. People make fun of me because I have about 30 books about the fundamentals of machine learning, and they ask me, why do you have all of them? Because, you know, all of them have a different angle and different yeah, perspective. Yeah, yeah. So, and then there are different ways of teaching, right? And you have to yes. do that, so you have to think about it. Yeah, so, you know, there's some people that they can think very well in terms of linear algebra. There's other people that can think better in terms of uh, probabilities. There's other people that they only understand optimization. That's kind of like another thing. We get a lot of OR people, operations research, industrial, ISY, industrial system engineering, yeah. that they're very good at linear programming, and they've never done machine learning before. By showing them how you can cast this as something they know, you can accelerate their transition. Got it. And, and there's a lot of people in the, in the traditional enterprise coming from operations research and ISY. And are they able to pick up the fundamentals of linear algebra and kind of learn things in a, in a class? Yeah, yeah, okay, uh, cool. absolutely. I mean, we don't get into advanced linear algebra stuff, but believe it or not, one of the most common things that everybody in engineering should know, which is least square feet, and how to add vectors and how to take dot products between vectors. And I'm becoming a bit technical. A lot of people have kind of like forgotten or they think they know, 
And when you put them down, you realize that a small percentage remembers to do that. But the most important thing is that they understand the value, you know, immediately. Once you show them how yeah, to do it, yeah. then it helps them, you know, to connect the dots and understand the most complicated stuff there is. Got it. There's some sort of refreshing and reminding of the basics. There's maybe an upgrading of certain skill sets that are already proximal so that people, they get the value, they've coded before, and maybe they might be able to sort of start to tinker with and integrate some of these things. But often if a team of folks, maybe they're other developers or operations research people, go learn maybe for a few different events and then kind of come back into their business, sometime to get sort of machine learning to click and deliver value for a conversational agent or for marketing or for whatever application they're building is still challenging. And there's this whole kind of consulting ecosystem. I mean, the Accentures and IBMs and whatnot are, are trying to get in there. And, and there's a lot of other niche folks with academic backgrounds or machine learning experience who come into companies, it seems to me awful risky to rely on auxiliaries to build the most important things in your business because when they leave or it seems like you're, you're in a tough spot, but there's clearly some value in some of that. Where do you see the consulting world sort of driving value for business? It feels like leaning on it. Some people think, like, oh, well, I can hire people to come in and do the ML and then cool, we'll have it. That feels very naive, but you give me your perspective on it. I think I agree with what you're saying. And sometimes during the training, we catch ourselves being a little bit consultants. So what is happening is that after a while, once people start picking up and catching up on the material, they immediately come and tell you, well, you know, I'm having this problem over there, or we tried this and it didn't work. I mean, can you help us? Something that we're sort of like trying to experiment right now with some companies is, is that, yeah, bringing consultants is one solution, but you're running the risk of what you just mentioned. Okay, they come, maybe they develop a solution. You know, if something breaks, you have to call them back. There's also something else that we've also realized is that the engineers in your company doing all the dirty work, then there's an interesting problem. And you bring somebody external to do the cool stuff. Mm. And then, you know, your own engineers being kind of like the second class citizens inside their company. There's a very nice quote from uh, Josh Wills. You know, he's now at Slack, the VP of engineering at Slack. I don't know if you know Josh. He used to be at Cloudera. I've, I've seen him speak once, actually. Yeah, he's a very provocative speaker. Yeah. He's a nice and provocative. And he said, <laughs> he was talking about all these companies that they do machine learning, you know, that have a machine learning product. And they said, they all look like, imagine there's a roller coaster with a, you know, a huge line and you've been waiting for hours. And once it's your turn, somebody comes to you and say, you know, look, if you give me your ticket, you know, I'm going to do the roller coaster for you and I'll take a video of that and then I'm going to show it to you. Like trying to say that, you know, people in your company, they do all the dirty work and then somebody else comes up to do the fun uh, roller coaster. Okay. Thing. That's an interesting perspective from the technical folks. So people yeah. probably don't think about that. So that creates some friction. Sometimes you can see some friction between the in-house people and the external people. And what is really, I think, unique right now is that maybe in the past, the consultants will come and do some, you know, heavy duty, unwanted work. Okay. But now... You got your engineers, you got your people who would be very happy to do that work if they knew how to do it. Okay, so I think it's better to invest in your people by training them or bringing a team. You can bring a consulting team, which is going to be, you know, very transparent and agreement. So, you know, we're going to develop that, but maybe we're going to co-develop that with you. So we're going to spend X amount of hours training your existing personnel. Okay, and obviously because you want you know, you don't want to, to spend a year doing this yes, yes, faster. Yes. We're also going to bring some people over here to develop it. But what you're going to get out of that is not just the product, but also a culture and the know-how. 
Okay. If you think about that's when companies sell military equipment, you know, airplanes and stuff like that, you know, one of the agreements is that, okay, I'm going to buy your airplanes, but then you have to teach me how to maintain them yes, or yes, how to yes. build them, you yes. know, if it's something smaller. So I think that's something that is, is happening. I think we're going to see in the future a mix of consulting and training at the same time, kind of like a circus university, as I'm calling it. You know, circus is moving from place to place. Yes, yes. So you bring your circus in the company yeah, 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 and because yeah. it's fun. And that's why I'm using this term. Yeah, you bring yeah, your circus, yeah. you entertain them, you build something, and then when you leave... Yeah. You know, you leave something behind, you yeah. know, and, and knowledge and culture and maybe people. Leave them an elephant and a guy that juggles <laughs> things on fire. Well, there's actually uh, some companies that they do, you know, these are the small scale. So what happens is that they pick an engineer who knows nothing about it. They call them fellows, okay? So they say, okay, you, you have problem hiring data scientists. I'm going to bring somebody here and we're going to do a project together. During this project, she's going to get trained and you're going to pay me something. And, you know, after six or seven months, if you like him, you will hire him and you will hire a person who knows machine learning because we taught him and you're also going to get, you know, part of your product on that. But that's kind of like a, on a smaller scale. It's, it's taking more the, the hiring angle and less the training angle. Huh, so part of the way that this ecosystem of AI will, uh, and I mean that in a literal sense, not in a hyperbole using ecosystem in all, in all context sense, this ecosystem of business with this scarce resource of machine learning knowledge, part of the way that that'll be solved is you predict that it'll be very tough for consulting teams to come in, solve the problem, and leave people the same knowledge they have because they won't be able to fix it. And the other developments and technical people on the team might resent that mm -hmm. and might feel disappointed in different ways that maybe consulting will sort of be merged in with training. And so the updating of the skills of the market will be in part events, but be in part bringing in consultants, which part of the value prop mm -hmm. is education. And then when yes. they move on, everybody's a little bit higher. Yes. Um, okay. So maybe that's sort of how this system tinkers up because I, I know Carnegie Mellon's not going to be able to pump out enough PhDs to fill up every company, right? So, I mean, somehow people are going to have to learn this and it's not, like you said, it's just going to be these online courses where I don't know the percentage of people that get the focus to take it all the way to completion. It can't be half. I mean, it can't be a third probably. So it's a tough bet. So it sounds like that's your thought on consulting there. Yes, yes. And, and you mentioned about, I mean, I don't have anything against online courses. They've been successful in some cases, but what I've seen through my experience is that very few people get the focus, as you said, and they get disciplined to follow and finish them. And then you got the other people that they are very enthusiastic and sometimes, you know, they want to go beyond and they have questions and thoughts that they want to discuss. And it's somehow difficult to answer these questions from forums here, blogs. Yeah. And so there's a reason why academic environments grew and became successful. Because it's an ecosystem where 24 hours, you got people around you. You know, you have a question, you can go and knock the door from a professor, from a PhD student and ask, you know, look, I had this idea about how can I apply, you know, nuclear physics and machine learning? Or what's the yeah, connection yeah, between yeah. this and this? And these are, you know, the ideas that, that bring value. Yep. Okay. And you can do that when you have a connection to academia, a connection to an environment. I mean, there's companies that one of the reasons why they have a lot of academic relationships is because if the questions or if they need something, they can immediately connect and get that, that knowledge. Yeah, and you're, you're obviously still plugged in with Georgia Tech, and so you get to stay in a little bit of both mm -hmm. ecosystems. That's certainly the value of you know academia in many respects is you know businesses can't afford to tinker all the time with different projects, but in academia, they want to fail a million times and find some brand new application mm -hmm. and 
their money is for that discovery. They, they don't have as much of the profit need at the same time. So there's benefits there. I'm wary of where we are in time, but I did want to ask this as a closing question to maybe coax out some more insights for the listeners. If there's people who are managing and growing teams or trying to upgrade teams to really be functional and useful with machine learning skills in, in the future of their business, some of them may need it now. Some of them it might not be an issue now, but in the coming years, they may see the demand and the need for those kind of particular skills. You know, someone tuned in who's aiming to build those teams, any sort of words of wisdom for managing the upgrading of a company's skills in the ML direction to make sure you don't mess it up? Yes, that's a, <laughs> that's a great subject. And I've seen cases where things went wrong, and I've actually seen a lot of successful cases. So let me give you an example. Great. So right now, a very smart engineer, you know, software engineer, usually these guys are very hands-on and very smart. I have great respect for them. What happens is that, you know, they hear about TensorFlow and they read a blog and they find out, you know, code that they can download and they can very quickly, you know, understand it and make it work. Okay. So they go to their boss and say, you know, look, I can take this data, apply this algorithm, I can get, let's say, performance. Basically, what is happening is that they think that they can become experts, you know, in a week just because they were able to replicate or take their data, take them through an algorithm and get some results. And what happens is that, you know, the boss gets excited to say, let's go and hire some machine learning people. The machine learning person comes and says, you know, we're actually not really doing things correctly. And there are things that you have to also be more careful. But this guy already thinks that he's an expert. Okay. What so, do you say when they hire a machine learning person just to so let's say they, they, Is that someone out of academia? Yeah. Yes, yes, a formal ML background. Yeah, okay. Somebody with a form, you know, formal ML background. So what happened is that. You're giving all the authority, like decision and design, all the authority to a software engineer. And then you got the data science person, the machine learning person kind of like going after him. And probably this machine learning person is not going to have the software skills or the engineering skills, you know, to juggle with the data and Hadoop and Spark, whatever we're giving. And he's always lagging behind. You know, there's also other cases where companies, they're trying to completely separate the engineering and the data science things. Okay, so they hire, let's say, a team or three or four data scientists. The data science, this have some requirements. The engineer said, well, I'm sorry, this is the way that I'm running my uh, data store and my jobs and my, everything. And if the data science team is requesting for, you know, some new technology or some new things to be installed, you know, the guy says, well, this is what we're working. You have to do it with whatever I have. Okay, great recipes for disaster. There's another one where, okay, we're trying to hire the unicorn, the data scientist who knows math, who knows, you know, databases, who knows systems, who knows everything. There's very few people like that, and there's no need of having more people like that, okay? We've known through the years that specialization is a good thing and has increased productivity. So for me, the best way to build products and to embrace machine learning in an organization is to make teams. You get a domain expert, you get somebody with formal machine learning education, and a very good engineer, and you make them work together, okay? They're in the same room, or if they're working remotely in the same team, and they're working together. You have to recognize a little bit the responsibility. So there must be a guy who builds the model, okay? This is typical the machine learning guy. You got the domain expert, let's go, you know, I'm gonna assume with the retail industry who's telling you what the client is expecting and what is possible and feasible and whether what you're producing is something meaningful or not because you know machine learning people might produce great results or great classifiers that they mean nothing to the client and then you got the engineer who is there to facilitate and make this happen make this scale okay and everybody's learning from each other 
you know, if a machine learning guy wants to run a Spark job and, you know, uh, he shouldn't just like describe and have the other guy run it, the engineer can actually teach him how to write his jobs better and improve them. But the machine learning guy shouldn't be left alone trying to optimize Spark jobs or Hadoop jobs because that's not what he's paid for. You know, small teams, no more than three or four people working on a project. Again, domain expert, machine learning person and an engineer, you know, who knows the system. Got it. It's okay to not have unicorns so long as, I guess, the collaboration is sort of functioning in a healthy way. And that's what you were just yes, trying to Yes, collaboration in a healthy way. Yep. And, you know, one is not threatening the other and one is not getting in the domain of the other trying to be the, you know, the smart guy. It happens a lot. Usually what happens, they go, they read the blog, say, oh, look what they did. And, you know, you give them a model to... Oh, to I know machine learning. I get it now. Like, this stuff wasn't even hard, right? Uh, yeah. So, yeah, that's why I think they should do it. And, I mean, it's also very bad to have, like, the data science team and the engineering team and the, I don't know, business consulting or domain expertise team. I think... You mean separate it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I don't think that that's productive. I don't think that's productive. And having a good, healthy cross-pollination yes, without yes. bossy, know-it-all characters trying to rule those interactions, but rather sort of having maybe a natural extension of their knowledge mm-hmm. into one another. Okay, cool. I think hopefully that some of this will be useful for certainly the people building these teams, but I hope for the listeners tuned in that some of this might even be useful for the technical people on your team. If you have developers who are going to be leading this charge, if you have data scientists who are aiming to integrate with ML people or, or other people who are subject matter experts, might be interesting to understand these dynamics. So I hope that this will kind of go beyond the boardroom to the technical crowd as well. And Nick, this was very insightful. Thank you for sharing your insights with us here. You're welcome, Dan. Very nice. That's all for this episode on the AI and Industry Podcast, where we explore the applications and implications of AI in your business or industry. When it comes to those benefits of real insight in terms of artificial intelligence applications in business, this show is really just the tip of the iceberg. AI and Industry is produced by Tech Emergence, and over at techemergence.com, you can find actionable industry-specific coverage, including case studies, unique market research with charts and graphs, and regular coverage of the AI applications of both the hottest startups here in the Bay Area, as well as what Fortune 500 companies are doing with AI today. Everything from marketing and advertising, business intelligence, to specific industries like finance and healthcare, you can stay ahead of the curve and stay on the right side of disruption by visiting techemergence.com. And when you're there, make sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter on the left-hand side of the page. Uh, Most of our podcast listeners get the episodes directly to their inbox every week. You'll be joining tens of thousands of other business leaders who join us from all over the world to stay ahead of the curve of AI in their specific industry. So that's techemergence.com. I'm Dan Fagella. This is AI and Industry, and we'll catch you next week.